Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben, and welcome to episode 375 of the podcast. It is July 9th, 2020. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Mohamed Saleh. Dr. Saleh has been a practitioner in Lean and Six Sigma transformations in both manufacturing and service sectors. He was directly mentored by one of the country's foremost experts on enterprise-wide lean transformation and the Toyota production system. He has extensive experience in hands-on healthcare, manufacturing, and other settings. His academic credentials include being a certified Six Sigma black belt from Kaplan University. He has a master's in technology management and a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Central Connecticut State University and a PhD in business administration from North Central University. He is, among other things, the founder of Visibility LLC, a lean consulting and training company. And he's also a managing partner in a firm called the M Plus Group. One of his partners in that firm, Crystal Y. Davis, was my guest here in episode 363. So today we talk about his background and education and influences um, in learning lean. And we delve into what it was like to lead a lean transformation at a large health system in Connecticut. And he'll also share a little bit about his PhD research. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, if you want to find links and um, other resources and show notes, you can go to leanblog.org slash 375. And uh, please uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. And uh, as always, thank you. Thank you for listening. Well, again, we are joined on the podcast today by Mohamed Saleh. Mohamed, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great. And, um, you know, we, we, we talked privately once, and I said, well, I should do it here. I should say, Dr. Saleh, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations on, uh, on, on getting your, your PhD fairly recently, right? I appreciate that, yeah. And we'll uh, talk about um, your dissertation and, and your research, but you want to talk a little bit about the things you've done in healthcare and, and introduce yourself and your career to the audience. If you want to uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, please. Sure. So like Mark said, my name is Mohammed Saleh. Um, I live in Connecticut and uh, married and uh, have two children, Aya and Noura and uh, I was originally born in Egypt, so you know I have a, a tendency to uh, you know to, to 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 do some work in the in the Middle East, uh, even though I, I haven't been afforded that opportunity recently. Most of my work has been in the U.S. Um, I have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, so like my wife likes to say, he's a recovering engineer. Uh, and so, <laughs> be an engineer, is how's that way? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Uh, I've softened up over the years, I guess. Um, and I have a master's in technology management, and that's really where my passion uh, lies and started igniting really lean at that time. And uh, my doctorate is in business administration, and I focused the dissertation on uh, lean in healthcare, and we'll talk more about that. Um, professionally, I'm, um, I, I, I'm a, I teach at uh, two universities, uh, uh, Central Connecticut State University. I teach in the engineering and technology graduate school for the last decade or so, uh, and as well as Elms College and the, uh, their MBA program. Um, I'm a founder of a consulting company called Visibility LLC, and, as well as a managing partner for a company called M+. And the majority of my career has been in healthcare. Um, uh, I've worked in um, a few different organizations, um, most recently one for 12 years, and that was um, a 30,000 employee healthcare system. And so I uh, have a very strong passion in transforming healthcare systems and everything in between them. Yeah. A couple quick follow ups. Um, M plus group. Um, one of your collaborators there is uh, Crystal Davis, who was a guest on episode three sixty three of the podcast. So you're working with her. You're working with some other other people I know. So yeah, excited yeah. to hear about the, those new developments for you. Yeah, no, that's that's been going really well. Um, I, I, just like any organization that's starting new, we're we're trying to find our rhythm and align our initiatives together. You know, we want to tackle the world pretty much, and we have to kind of laser focus on those breakthroughs right now. So, we're in the process of formulating them and, and truly understanding, you know, where we're, where this is going to be taking us. But 
most, you know, it's, it's an advisory coaching um, and development company really focusing on taking individuals who uh, want to um, learn more about what does it take when someone says yes to go through a transformation and the different sciences uh, that interplay with one another. It's not really a copy and paste methodology, but rather than different thought leaders coming together through a platform to kind of teach the individual on how to guide them. So it's a mixture of knowledge sharing, event planning, um, and uh, workshops and stuff like that, that, um, you know, it's, uh, that weaves together different sciences rather than fixate on an approach. Yeah. And, um, you know, before we talk about lean healthcare work that you've done, um, in, in Connecticut and the U S I, I am curious, um, I've talked with people from, um, Egypt and other countries in the middle East. I know there's a lot of interest in lean healthcare, They've never had the opportunity to really visit or do any work there. But, you know, I'm curious from, from your experience, are there, um, you know, differences? I mean, it's probably hard to generalize, but in terms of organizational cultures or kind of, you know, ways of adapting lean or the adoption of lean that you've seen uh, across different countries or cultures? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, if, if I could go to the one that I would say is the most significant and, 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 you know, and I don't know if, if I'm generalizing, this is to my understanding. Um, I've focused most of my career around preventative medicine and trying to proactively um, solve for certain uh, chronic issues that, you know, through primary care physicians so that, you know, downstream we could kind of work that out um, and so I was surprised when I started talking to uh, a lot of different healthcare organizations in both the Gulf and uh, in Africa um, that the, the concept of primary care doctor is, is almost doesn't exist in many situations. Really? Um, and so there's a general medicine physician where if you have an issue, you go to that individual. But they're, they're, it's not like here where they're managing your entire network. They're the facilitator of your healthcare. Um, it's more like an urgent care kind of setting um, where if you have an issue, you go, you get seen and, you know, and you go to that same urgent care doctor for those issues, but they don't manage your health care. Um, and so for me, that was kind of a paradigm difference and shift of, okay, so uh, the, the, the patient is the one that actually facilitates what they need when they need it. The other thing that I found that was dramatically different is the pharmacist in those um, countries plays a more significant role than in America, where um, uh, and I'm not sure in, in Europe, I, I haven't done much work there, but like in, in, in America, you know, you, you pretty much are advised to pick up your pharmaceuticals based on your primary care doctor, where in like a country like Egypt, uh, and I've, I've actually experienced this myself multiple times. I went to high school and a few years of college there. So I was old enough to kind of experience it. But, you know, you actually ask the pharmacist what they think you should take and they prescribe it for you. Um, and so the, you know, and so they, they issue prescriptions. Um, so as a patient, I show up, I think, I think I have this and this and this, here's my symptoms. And like, yeah, I think this, this might work, but if it doesn't come back and I'm like in America, that's really a primary care job. <laughs> yeah. I think America must be really unique in that world. Cause I know in different countries in Europe, pharmacists are allowed to prescribe a fairly wide range of the most common medicines for the most, so the, for the most common conditions. So maybe a, you know, a Pareto principle that they can prescribe 20% of the drugs that are useful 80% of the time, more or less. Um, yeah. So like it, when we came here, I, I, I recall when I wanted an antibiotic, I showed up to uh, a Walgreens and uh, I asked for it. <laughs> They're like, we don't, we don't operate that way. <laughs> you have to have a primary care doctor. And that's when the whole process started for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, and then I, you know, I've there's oh, I was in Switzerland last year, and I have some prescription eye drops that I have to use, and I lost them. I left them when I had to take them out of my bag for security at Heathrow switching yeah. planes because in the U.S. I never have to take liquids out of my bag. I've been on an overnight flight. I was tired, and I was out of process. And um, the the pharmacy in Zurich was you know it's still a prescription medicine there. But from talking to the, the pharmacist, I was able to basically just buy 
the medication after that quick consult from the pharmacist. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised in the other direction. <laughs> that was helpful for me after I had messed up. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know, you, you don't know. Like, like it's, it's like, Oh, this is much easier to get these things here. Yeah. Yeah. So I found those to be the more significant ones when it comes to like hospital settings. I found them to be very similar to one another. Yeah. Um, emergency departments have the similar issues. The, the periop areas have similar issues that, you know, we, um, the, what we call like border patients between the emergency department and the floors, the discharge issues. Like when I talk to different healthcare organizations, uh, especially like in, I would say the, the majority of my conversations have been Dubai, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. So I'm kind of generalizing based on those three conversations, but it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's been very similar discharge issues, border issues, periop issues, kind of uh, doctor geographical location issues, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, I always like to ask guests, you know, before we, um, you know, before we talk about working in healthcare, one of my favorite questions is to ask people how they first got introduced to Lean, if you want to tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, so I, um, I started during, doing my, uh, actually, I started my master's in manufacturing engineering. And so that was a, an interesting uh, uh, approach because I was a mechanical engineering. I designed seats for airplanes at a company that was... Uh, mm a supplier of Boeing and uh, and I would see in you know the, these these Japanese people from Boeing showing up at my company and and uh, you know and I, and, I, and I quickly realized not only do they not like me but the manufacturing people don't like me and I didn't understand why the division between many mechanical engineers and manufacturing engineers and why when my product goes to the floor to get made um, and I was I was my focus was on the cushions of uh, um, of airplane seats, why why no one liked them, mm-hmm. and I realized I had like many parts to my design where other more senior um, designers did less parts, and so the floors loved them, and so I decided to get my master's in manufacturing engineering, and in that course, uh, probably I want to say a year in, I um, I ran into a, a course called cell design. Mm-hmm. And so I took that course, started to learn about cell design, and the professor midway had an issue. Um, and so I had to learn the rest on my own. And I realized the more I learned it and I started researching, this concept of link kept popping up. So I decided to research this a little bit more, and I found actually my university was offering a master's in it mm-hmm. um, under technology management. And so I actually switched my major at that point mm-hmm. to technology management, lost a few of my courses because they weren't transferable, but it was worth it. And, um, and uh, ran into uh, two professors at that time, Dave Steck and Bob and Liani, who um, really, my, those were my first two courses. And one talked about innovative leadership and respect for people. And the one, other one talked about how do you integrate uh, lean into operation management and um, and I fell in love with it. And then I got introduced after that to uh, two other individuals in the end part of my, uh, of my or actually more than two individuals in the, the, the end part of my technology management. And that was like Larry Grasso when I did Lean Accounting, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Murley, uh, Dave, uh, Mark Deluzio. And so these were individuals that I started then learning um, about this. And... Uh, and at that time, I started Googling this stuff to kind of see, like, who's doing it and what's out there because I, I was just like, like, I need to do more of this. So I started shadowing them a lot uh, to see what's going on. And at that time, Gimba Academy, Ron was just, uh, Ferro was just releasing a lot of his videos back then. And SME was blowing up with videos back then, too. And I would have to say those were my two schoolings outside of my mm-hmm. school like mm-hmm. that. I kind of gained insight of what's going on in the world. And uh, the more I learned, the more I realized I don't know. And until today, mm-hmm. I could tell you I still don't know. Uh, but, uh, but at that time, that's kind of how I got introduced to it. And, uh, and, and when I finished my master's, I, I felt like it was too short of a master. Like I needed like another one just to understand what's going on. And so at that point, I told my wife, I was like, I think I'm going to drop this engineering thing and I'm going to move to this field. I kind of like this stuff. Um, and so I would say that's how I moved into Lean. Yeah. So you went from uh, yeah the product design side to the manufacturing side. Yeah. And then so um, yeah, what was your transition from um, engineering in, in a manufacturing setting uh, in, into healthcare? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason, right? <laughs> and so yeah. I uh, initially, um, 
as I was learning this, I did four interns um, focused on lean, spent my nights and weekends shadowing people. Like I just made this my life. And uh, at one point, there was this uh, individual who was an occupational health physician. And he happened to be the occupational health physician for Wiremold and, and, and Pratt and & Whitney, and uh, I believe uh, Dana Her as well. And uh, this occupational health physician approached uh, Dave Steck and, uh, and Bob and Liani and asked them to come in to be full-time employees. And they kind of told him that they're, they have their own consulting company and they're not really looking for employment. Um, and they're, they're more in the consulting. And so they, you know, because I was shadowing them and just, yeah. you know, stalking them pretty much everywhere they went, <laughs> I wanted to learn. I, I didn't, I didn't care what they were doing. I just wanted to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so they, they recommended me to be their director that I, this is like two years in now, probably the director of continuous improvement for this, uh, individual who I then learned really quickly that he was the CEO of the medical group. Um, and now this CEO had brought Dave and, uh, and, uh, Bob in a year prior to me coming in. Um, the CEO then flew out to Virginia Mason, did some training there, flew out and, and did some work with Shingehitsu and tried to do this on his own for a year. Um, because it's, you know, simple common sense stuff that, you know, you could just try and he tried and he failed, um, and ran into a wall and he said, you know, I know I need someone full time at this. So at that point, when he approached me and said, do you want to come to healthcare? My first reaction was it doesn't apply to healthcare. Like that's my world. I didn't know any better. I was in manufacturing right. and, and that's kind of the, you know, the world that I lived in. I, I, and I, I'll admit to um, being puzzled that same way. The first time I had a chance to visit a hospital um, to look at lean when I was working for a manufacturing company still, like, I thought, oh, well, that, oh, interesting, you know, and, but it was surprising. Yeah. It was, it was. And uh, it, it took me a little bit to grasp my mind that the customer and the product is the patient, um, where I'm used to the customer and the product being two different things. And so I had, to, that was one thing I had to wrap my mind around. But this CEO was actually really kind to me because he said, you know, Mohammed, in the first, uh, let's give it at six months. And if it doesn't work out, I'll keep paying you until you find another manufacturing job. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I felt like there was no risk here. Um, both of the mentors and Deluzio and Murley and all of them were highly encouraging me to do it. Um, I started Googling who else does it at that time. There was literally no one published other than Virginia Mason. So, um, what was, what was the year when this was happening? This was in 2000. Um, let's, uh, I'm trying to backtrack here. Uh, so what are we, that's 14 years ago. So, um, 2006. 2006. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's still, that's pretty early in the days of lean healthcare. There was more dabbling at the time than it was really widespread. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what I was seeing when I had the chance to get into healthcare in August of 2005. There wasn't as much literature yet to point people to or examples. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually um, that first six months, I, um, I, when I did it, there was, uh, you know, Nakao had gone down to Virginia Mason. So I was trying to figure out like, you know, figure out his tracks uh, and if I could learn anything, but he wasn't publishing much other than the CEO of Virginia Mason at the time. So it was very high level for me. And I was still kind of, I would say entry level at that time in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, all foundational stuff. So I, I, I found a healthcare class actually at LEI and actually that's where I met you for the first time uh, in 2006. Um, and, um, and, and Murley was teaching a class around standard work and load leveling uh, at LEI at that time too, with a healthcare twist to it. So, um, and it could be 2007 at this point because it, it was it was well, the, the end of 2006 when, when I when I started. Well, when, when I was teaching, so uh, I remember like more clearly crossing paths at a lot of the lean healthcare transformation summits. But yeah, I was at if um, LEI. Two, it was might have been 2009. Nine. Okay. So I had met Murley before you then. Probably. Um, and, um, and, and at that time I, I started like learning a lot about standard work and creating a franchise kind of model. And we were 16 offices at the time and, uh, we were able to, and I had a very different situation with this, uh, this, in this, because this is a CEO who believed it a hundred percent. Like he, uh, like he, he wasn't and he, because he tried it on his own with his executive team, his executive teams were 
believed it. So I came in and I didn't have to influence really anyone at the top to do this, yeah. which is like, uh, you know, I think it was a blessing in disguise because everything in my life after that changed. <laughs> yeah. But, um, more we were able it. to, we were in three years, we were able to bring it a little over 40 offices and every exam room was identical. There was Kanban systems set up for every inventory item. There was pull systems for uh, patient tracking um, we load leveled, uh, the, the, the mix and volume, uh, with the types of that we were still in charts at that time. So it was easy to create boxes and kind of swap between the boxes and stuff like that. And, uh, it, you know, the simple five S standard work, everyone was involved in it. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was amazing. It was a great time. Um, he did put some challenges on me that, you know, in hindsight, I would say has taught me a lot, uh, which is, uh, um, he, at that time, I wasn't a big fan of this approach, but I think now looking back, I would suggest any leader do this with their people as, as frustrated as the practitioner might be. Uh, I think it still is, 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 it was a great learning opportunity, but in the first three years, uh, cause I was with them for uh, a whole five years before I, I went on to my next healthcare uh, opportunity and the, the first five years there, I um, the first three years there, he wouldn't uh, give me any uh, lean support. Um, and he, uh, you know, he would always tell me, Muhammad, the, the, the best way to influence is without power. If I give you power, it's only going to disable you. Um, and so, um, learn how to do it without power. Um, and, uh, and I didn't appreciate that at that time. Like I, I wanted to tell people what to do, you know, <laughs> um, but it, I learned the art is tempting. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. human nature to want to say, well, I know what we need to do. I'm going to just tell you. So I don't, I don't fault you for that, but it sounds like you, you, you then had to learn from that. I did. I did. And I, 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 I realized the importance of relationships and I really focused my attention on that. And, uh, and then two years in he another issue happened is we had um, we grew too fast um, and so we didn't have enough practice managers to staff all these offices that we were building and growing and so he uh, asked every director well, it was more than ask he volunteered every director to uh, manage two practices um, and so here I'm the director of continuous improvement leveraging internal resources as my advocates uh, created a pillar-like structure. So all the MAs got on a phone call once a month, all the receptionists got on a phone call once a month, and they would share the standard works that they're developing and any TPM opportunities that were, were, were happening as well. And uh, as we were doing that, I, uh, I became the practice manager as well um, to two offices. So now, now I was on the other end feeling my implementations and the you know, some of the illogical things I was saying uh, to do that were really hard to do from a practice manager perspective. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so like, you know, if, if you want to tell, you know, if everyone should be coming up with an idea as well, how do you, you know, track standard work and, you know, how, you know, and I, and I started learning the art of collecting ideas, letting it stabilize, giving it 90 days and then doing big improvement where, you know, on the other side, I didn't appreciate the pain of that. So um, I learned quickly the, the the need for daily management, even though at that time I didn't know it was called daily management yet. I hadn't run, uh, read the man's book, but I was very intrigued yeah. about what that was. Um, but in the end, we were able to lay a foundation and uh, that foundation uh, uh, almost felt like a franchise-like model. Um, doctors were involved. Um, so they, like they, they tracked their interruptions. One of the things that we did with them is track their interruptions. Every time they had to leave a room for anything, they would have mm -hmm. to lock what it was for. We yeah. would periodo that and we would eliminate all need for interruptions. Um, yeah. and they themselves, you know, I would say the first two years I did everything around the doctors. I didn't want to touch the doctors. Uh, I was intimidated by them to be, you know, I was a new industry and I was just trying to figure out how to apply lean myself. So I, I stayed away from them. In year three, having now being a practice manager as well, I had to build a relationship with the doctors of my practice. And um, as we started testing things as a team, they would then go to other offices to float and they would sell it in the other offices. And by year four, it just organically just became like the thing that everyone wanted to do. Like they would go in another uh, office and they'd be like, 
well, this is not standard. Uh, and so they would know exactly that drawer two on the left-hand side, I should find this in any practice. Like, uh, it shouldn't matter which practice I go to. Um, and uh, so I, I would say that that was my, my first medical group experience. Um, I have two other experiences, but I want to see, do you want to comment on anything before I move on to the next one? Yeah, well, um, you know, a couple of thoughts. Um, one, I mean, I think that's not an uncommon strategy of people, whether, you know, whether you're framing it, it's not like you were, you were, you know, kind of reflecting on, you know, maybe avoiding working directly or challenging the, the doctors in different ways. But, you know, that, that's, that's not uncommon where a lot of times, you know, people are trying to establish buy-in being of service to the physicians can be a really helpful strategy. And that can often be win-win to where, you know, like to your point, if we're trying to uh, reduce waste that might remove frustration from the physician's day, that also reduces waiting time for the patient. And they may have a better experience if the doctor's not grumbling about yeah. those frustrations and irritations. And then, and then sometimes that ends up drawing the physicians in. So, you know, follow-up question is whether it was in that setting or in other settings, did you see instances where initial proof of concept or making things better for the doctors brought some of them in to be more directly involved in some of that work? Yeah. So, um, so in, in, in this setting, it became, I stayed away from them. Um, but because everything for them was getting better, they started to like me. Yeah. yeah. So they were, had an appetite to listen to me. Um, and so when I said, you know what, you're really batching your charts in the end of the day, can I test with you a load leveling approach? Hey, I don't want to go to one piece flow right now. Could we just say, instead of charting 24 charts in the end of the day, could you at least do like, you know, 12 and 12? Mm -hmm. uh, and I would change the pitch to that. And I, we would stick to that. And then, you know, after like two months, I would say, hey, could we try to do now six and six, yeah. six and six yeah. and six. Right. Um, and I would design the staff around that. And, you know, and we got it down to three charts per hour um, and or two charts, depending on the physicians and their and their and their productivity. And, um, and the medical assistants knew that every two hours, uh, every one hour, there'd be a, two charts sitting out or three charts sitting out. And then they would inspect it. They would do what they need to do. They would look at their billing or super bill. And um, and, and it became the, the doctor started seeing that they're going home earlier. Um, that less rejects are, are coming back for them to fix every dime. They're not frustrated by the medical assistant not getting to them in time. So there's a lot of benefits that made them like in the like in the beginning, they 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 were skeptical of what we're doing. But I think by year three, and by partnering with my own offices with the, those physicians who were huge advocates for what we were doing. Uh, because it was their ideas. It wasn't my idea. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, um, the, the the load leveling approach, it wasn't Muhammad telling everyone, hey, let's do load leveling. No, they, these doctors started talking to other doctors saying, well, in our offices, we don't do billing or, or charts in the end of the day. Uh, and the doctor would be like, how do you guys get out? Like that's, that's, <laughs> and so, and so, so it was less strategic top down and more bottom up and organic in, in my first experience. Um, and it, it was because of that nugget of figure out how to influence without power. Mm -hmm. Um, and honestly, any leader that could figure that out, that's it. They're done. They're good. Yeah. Uh, like, cause that's really the, 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 the key ingredient here is if, if people could believe in what you're doing and you're able to influence them because you're speaking to their pain points, mm -hmm. um, it, it was, it, it would, it would, it goes very far. Yeah. Um, I would say that, that, that then at that point, I was still very tool-based. Um, at, at, at that point, I got the attention of um, uh, the, um, the president of a hospital who, uh, and not just me, Mohammed, the, the, the medical group got the attention um, and approached the CEO and the executive team and ended up buying out the medical group. Um, and so, you know, at, at that time he, this, the president approached me and said, Hey, I, I want you to move out of uh, the medical group and I want you to go into the hospital setting. seems like you have a lot of, uh, outpatient experience. I want to see how your inpatient experience looks like. It'll be a growth opportunity for you, but I want you to do whatever you did there here. 
Um, and he had already initiated something um, it, that was in play around engaging departments in monthly problem-solving meetings uh, and top-down communication and dashboard focus on metrics. And so when I moved to the hospital setting, that was already in play. I didn't, I didn't contribute to that. Yeah. Um, but it had kind of stagnated at that point. And all the low-hanging fruit has kind of been plucked. And the dashboard metrics wasn't moving any more forward. And he wanted to do something more. And he, he felt like, okay, whatever. The, 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 and he, he actually didn't say it's because, you know, the medical group grew so fast. He said it, the environment and language in the medical group um, seemed happier. Yeah. Um, and kinder and, um, and, and more supportive. And so he wanted to bring that into the hospital setting. And so he, I would have to say a lot of kudos for him for, for thinking like that. Yeah. And he assigned me to the emergency department and to the, the periop areas. And those were kind of my two areas for a little bit. And, uh, and what was fascinating about it is, uh, we did, a, a you know, my, this is, my biggest mistake in, in, in doing a Kaizen was this, this mistake I'm about to say okay. was I moved into the hospital setting probably less than four weeks in now. And I go into the emergency department, meet with the director of the emergency department. And she's telling me all these things of what's going on. And I'm watching. And I said, do you mind if I just shadow some of your physicians and nurses? So I did. I shadowed the physician and nurses for a week and I realized really quickly that the telemetry patients that are in the emergency department have to require a nurse to go upstairs. Um, but the, the person that was taking them upstairs was the nurse from the emergency department. Mm. And so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, so the nurse in the emergency department has seven to one ratio. The nurses in the floor have a four to one ratio. The nurses on the floor have a stable patient. The nurses in the emergency department have patients that they don't even know what they have yet. And yet they leave their patient to bring a patient upstairs. And so I said, hey, wouldn't it be easier for the patient upstairs, the, the nurse upstairs to just come and pull her own patient? And, and, and it might patient. be safer for the patient still down in emergency. Yeah. That they're otherwise uh, leaving, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and it would, you know, cut all this border time because now the, the patients that are pretty much not tagged by any department because they're kind of stuck in between – um, the one upstairs has already one less patient and the one downstairs, if she doesn't, or he doesn't have to pull that, bring that patient upstairs could pull the patient from the waiting room, which could then ex reduce left without being seen and all that. In my head, it was like a, the engineering part. Like I saw the whole thing working out perfect. Mm -hmm. I did not understand the cultural issues that I, of what I was saying. Um, the nurses on the floor has never been to the emergency department. The nurses in the emergency department never exposed their issues. Um, and so um, this Kaizen took approximately two years. Yeah. Uh, with every issue in the textbook of lean that could go wrong, went wrong, uh, all the barriers, frustrations. And I was lucky enough that the vice president of um, uh, nursing and um, the vice president of medical affairs were both on my side and saw this as potentially good. Um, and the directors of both the medicine floor um, and the, and the inpatient and the emergency department were on board as well. But, you know, this emergency department had over 200 nurses. Um, so it wasn't a small emergency department. This, this hospital was 8,000 employees. And so, um, but it worked after two years. And uh, at that time, the oncology, the head of oncology that was responsible for five um, hospitals said, hey, Mohammed, um, how do I take whatever you did there? Because that, I could tell you for the last 30 years was a problem. And now it's resolved. Yeah. Uh, how do I take that and scale it because across all my oncology practices across uh, all of my hospitals? And... Uh, this was a new endeavor for me because I hadn't done that. And I started actually going back to the medical group concepts because that are all different medical practices, which is kind of the same concept. Um, but it was layered with, uh, at that time, um, a very large uh, uh, oncology practice in New York, probably one of the top three, so everyone knows them, um, kind of um, started creating an alliance with, uh, with our hospital. Uh, with our whole five hospitals. And, uh, and so we were faced with this 
dilemma of which this this president called the yin and yang, um, where we had to now have one experience for all our patients across all five hospitals and at the same time adopt the standards of care from this alliance work, which led us with almost 490 initiatives uh, that we had to do. And that was what I really, you know, um, I would say learned the art of um, creating patient-centered care. Uh, while still involving the physicians. So, you know, every single meeting I had, I had to run it by the physicians of those areas, if it's radiation or if it's medical oncology or whatever it was. I, I started partnering with the physicians just as much as I was partnering with the nurses. It, there was where in the other settings, I was partnering with the nurses and I was partnering, partnering with, uh, um, with the, 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 the support staff with hopes that the doctors would see the benefit. Right. Uh, this one, I just went directly to the doctor and said, here's what we need to do. How do you propose we do it? And then it was Muhammad no longer doing the work, but more advising and coaching them to do the work. Um, and we did. We, we fulfilled the alliance requirement. We resolved all, mitigated all 490 issues. And um, this then brings me to the, bat, the, the last part of my story. And, um, and this was um, now I'm, I get the attention of the CEO of the whole healthcare system. Hmm. It says, all right, I want to do this now. And outside of this, like scope, I want to do it across everything. Um, and he said, um, and uh, he said, you know, build a team and let's get this done. And uh, and so I, that was my first exposure to build, really building a full lean office. Like until this time, uh, now in this story, I had a, a team of six that I was working with. Um, but I didn't have the magnitude of people I needed. So I started, I hired seven senseis um, and, and that was the term the organization deemed it. Uh, but in my mind, they were already credible and earned the title of a sensei because one led the Pratt & Whitney transformation where, and was one of the founders of the ACE program there. Um, it, one person was, you know, from Foxwoods. One person was from uh, w- with Motorola when they first started Six Sigma. So I started looking at this, one person led restaurant transformation. So I started looking at people of just very diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and um, I only had one person from manufacturing, the person that helped with Mass Mutual. Like I started looking at all these different calibers and brought them in. And then with them, um, we were able to build a team of 30 plus or minus, depending on the year. Um, where then we led this transformation of around 30,000 employees now, including behavioral health, uh, home care uh, divisions, uh, skilled nursing facilities, rehab networks, uh, the whole plethora of a healthcare system. And uh, I learned a lot of, I I made a lot of mistakes as a leader of, you know, like how fast to go, how deep to go. I think I reached out to a few times during that journey too, to kind of use you as a sounding board because, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't know, like, you know, I went really deep and created a, a model seller a lighthouse we had 800 departments i went down to 14 we created them perfectly um they got extremely good results and then we started scaling from that um but i have to tell you like you know it became like about daily management all of a sudden people started right. thinking lean was daily management um and, and and kaizen stopped almost to a point like uh, like people didn't want to do kaizen anymore. that's that's puzzling because like to make Ki- ongoing kaizen activity is part of daily lean management or it's integrated into it. Right. Yeah. A hundred, a hundred percent. And you know, I, I've been trained like this year's strategy deployment initiatives is next year's daily management stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bridge between those two is Kaizen's uh, not just the small departmental ideas that come up, but actual full cell designs and uh, full de- multi, you know, department issues. Um, but, and we had other challenges that we faced as well. We had other departments that had turf issues. Uh, you know, wh- wh- when is it a quality initiative? When is it a project management initiative? When is it a strategy initiative? When is it a lean initiative? Yeah. So I had to deal with all that and figure it out how to weave them together so everyone could feel engaged. And, you know, I made, you know, I, I bridges were burnt on one point and then I had to repair them. And, the whole yeah. building of a lean office, I have to tell you, is, is it was my biggest learning experience because I have really high-end caliber people from a very diverse background, all with different mindsets of how they think this should be done, um, and yeah. Yeah. Which, which created the, the perfect um, recipe for success, but also created the perfect recipe for 
issues uh, because we were then faced with, um, you know, like we try something, it didn't work. We want to study and adjust, but we're in a culture that is not so doesn't have the appetite for fail fast. Uh, and so we had to teach the organization through problem solving and A3s and stuff like that, that fail fast is the culture that we're trying to create. And we were using ourselves ourselves as an example. Uh, but in the end, I think we, we did roll out daily management across all the areas. Um, we were able to see how the different departments could play with one another and uh and then i uh i then i at that point i uh moved out and uh focused on how could i spread what i've learned to multiple healthcare organizations rather than just to be in, in one healthcare system so i would say uh, uh amazing time um uh, training was beautiful in all three of my stories um i would say the last one with the full blown i'm not 100% sure if the top was as bought in as in my other first two stories yeah. Um, there was an aspect of delegating lean versus the other two where like the president of oncology did actually lean training twice to make sure the whole thing, although entire immersions, which was two year immersions, just to show their staff for her to show the staff her dedication and that, that there's nothing is beneath her. Where in my last example, when it was a full blown, there was a lot of lean delegation going on. And uh, and uh, and I think that contributed to some of the challenges that we faced as well. Yeah. Because um, can you talk a little bit more about the immersion training? Is that similar to um, I've heard, you know, other health systems would take somebody from uh, a leadership role and kind of put them in a full-time lean role for two years? Is, is that the we, we, we had that as a design. Uh, that's not what I meant by immersion, but we had that as part of our preceptor design uh, initiative. Um, I left before that came to fruition, but I think it's still ongoing. But no, the immersion was, so, you know, Mark is a leader. Um, his department wants to go through this transformation. His first immersion will be that he'll go through an immersion of just A3 problem solving and setting up daily management. Mm-hmm. That's all Mark is going to get. Okay. And, uh, and then he will get a, a team that will focus both peers um, and uh, practitioners who will focus on getting Mark's board up, getting his problem solving muscle to a certain level, Um, and then when he's done with that, so a lot of the training is side by side with a different peer that's already been through this. Um, and then after that, uh, you would come back and you would get like an immersion two training, which is now really uh, a lot. It kind of aligned a little bit with the Shingo, which is now you're stepping into bronze and you're looking at, okay, how do you create standard work? What's tack time? What's total TPM? How could you, um, five S your area? And so you get like, you know, quick changeover and standard work and mistake proofing. How do you bake that into your standard work? So you start looking at these kind of concepts. Uh, how do you set up a Kanban system? And then you go out for six months and you, that becomes your focus to bring those up. And then you come back to the academy for another immersion of like, you know, how do you now s- start looking at strategy deployment and setting up your own departmental contributions and catch ball? Um, how do you start conducting Kaizans rather than just participating in a Kaizan? Uh, and so the immersions were kind of made in that way. Um, our, our sister department was project management and they had uh, a program where they took people from the company, put them in the project management role. And uh, it wasn't a two year thing. It was a permanent thing where you still had the responsibilities of your company, but had the developmental and alignment of that department where if they had team meetings, you attend that team meeting when they had any educational and stuff that you would be taught just as any other project manager in the company, yeah. but you were, but you still had the, the, the job of being in that department department. You still had that kind of stuff. Um, I was hoping to get like a redeployment office going uh, before I left where it's more around what you're asking is, can I take someone out for two years into their redeployment office uh, and then train them as a practitioner and then put them back? Um, it wasn't, it, we, I, I wasn't able to do that in, in any of my stories. Um, I did have some of my senses get redeployed as vice presidents back into the healthcare system. So like one of my senses was redeployed as the vice president of home care. Um, and now she's sitting at the table. So I had some of those stories of people that were facilitators who were then redeployed as directors back into operations, but that was, um, based on desire of the individual, not based on a strategic plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of moving from your work within health systems. We might not be able to do it justice, but I was wondering if you could share at least kind of in a nutshell, 
your story around your PhD, what, what inspired you to go pursue that degree and, and, and what you ended up researching? Of course. Um, and like I said, we could talk for hours. So yeah. Um, well, we'll do this I, again sometime. <laughs> absolutely. I, um, I, I, I am a believer that the more you know, the less you know. And I'm, I know less today than I knew when I first started. I was a lot more arrogant and probably confident of what I knew when I first started than today. Today, I'm, I could tell you that any, I'm, I'm more open to anything that someone says. I don't react anymore to different concepts that are different than mine. I'm, I'm, I, I have ears. But one of the things that I realized, I was doing a lot of research and I wasn't putting it towards anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was still learning and, um, and I was fascinated by the, um, the, 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 symmetry, the, the symmetry perspective of healthcare organizations and how they view us as practitioners rather than how we view them. Like we could be very judgmental. We could go in and say all the leaders need to do X, Y, and Z, all the people need to do it. Like we have our, our mindsets of, oh, we have to shift these mindsets from X to Y. But I was always fascinated by, I wonder how we're heard. Okay, like, you know, and some people say, well, you know, the Six Sigma people are very rigid. Well, how do you what, what are what are they saying for you to say that? Mm. Like, uh, like, and so I started looking at separate realities and uh, a guy named John Cooper, um, who I'm fascinated by his work, created a manufacturing model of understanding the separate realities from a, a socio characteristics perspective. And he created 12 domains of socio characteristics that he tested out on manufacturing that allowed him to view the manufacturing settings from the lens, uh, view, view the, the lean adoption or system adoptions from the lens of the manufacturing settings. So in my research, I took that a step further and I, um, I started looking at the, this research, this, this socio perspectives. I, I had 12 domains. Um, the first domain was on leadership and that was focused on like people uh, and teamwork skills uh, leadership commitment and like leadership participation. Um, and, and I, and I started looking, okay, so if each one of those story, if each one of these characteristics was to say a story about what we do, what would they say? Like, what would leadership commitment say back to us as a voice? What would leadership participation say back to a voice? Like I could tell you leadership commitment from the other side could tell us, Oh, the board is pressuring us. They could say all these different things where sometimes we're not even like mindful of when we do the things that we do. Um, and so I, I started looking into that. The second domain I started looking into was, um, uh, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge passion of mine because it's, it's, I think it's, it's organizational culture. And the organizational culture um, I started looking had three uh, dimensions in it. One, the first one was uh, employee participation. So the last domain we had uh, leadership participation, but in the culture one, we have employee participation. And a lot of books out there talk about how important it is for employee participation. And so I was fascinated by employee engagement and all the initiatives that healthcare settings were doing around that. So that already caught my attention. And then the other two in that, in that domain was two-way communication and open communication. And two-way communication for me was it has been until today something I'm very extremely passionate about is how do you flatten out organizations? And you know, I started studying Conway's law of you know that how people like to communicate becomes your hierarchy. And so if you could fix the way they communicate, you could alter the hierarchy without having to force a physical flattening. And so I started studying that, uh, but that opened the door to open communication that people aren't you know even if you flatten it, but people aren't speaking up then you, you know, there's fear. And I started looking at that, but, um, and so that was kind of my second area. Uh, my third area was around, uh, organizational, uh, change. And I started looking at change and wanting to understand, uh, you know, what, what are the different trainings that are happening? Uh, you know, like if the training department was to talk back to us, like what is healthcare, how do they get trained now? And how are we telling them to train different? So we say, go see, go do, are they in a culture of just always go see or because they're physician are, are they actually in a culture of go see, go do. Um, so I started looking into, into that. I started looking into um, uh, <clears throat> when it comes to uh, change, I started looking into leadership characteristics, like the leadership character impacts change. And so uh, I started looking at arrogance and humility and stuff like that and how the, how those play a role. And, 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 and I could, you know, I, I could go on and on in that area. But I also started looking at this concept of in, in during change, there's resistance. 
Mm-hmm. And I was one of those people that said, you know, is it resistance or is it just a lack of influence? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. I've been, you know, focused on influence all, or is it a lack of respect for people? Like, or what or, is it or not, people? not blaming the person who seems resistant one way. Yeah, because that resistant person I have found in my career, at least to be the most passionate person and the one that cares the most. So is it really resistant right. or is it too much care? Um, and so I started studying that and that became my third domain uh, which is organizational change and then my last domain that I kind of closed my dissertation up with was around um, um, uh, the intrinsic factors mm-hmm. like the size of the organization the the uh, does that play a factor a big or small organization um, the age of the organization like a 150 year healthcare organization versus like a 30 year organization is there a different factor of how they will respond to what I'm saying from an approach. Um, And then like uh, union versus non-union academic versus non-academic, like all these things played a role. Uh, But I didn't want to copy Cooper's concept. I wanted to add another level of uh, another layer of complexity to my research. So I, I stepped away and I started looking at not only how do they hear what we have to say, Um, what is the mindset or what are the principles that are needed for each one of these domains, current and required? Uh, How do they inform system architecture throughout all 12 domains? And um, and then what kind of behavioral evidence do we see now and what are the behavioral evidence that we want to see if these system architects um, infused those design principles up front? Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell, what my dissertation was about. Um, I could tell you, I could have probably spent another 10 years on it. Uh, but I had a deadline and I had to close after eight years of doing this. (laughs) (laughs) They call it a terminal degree. So at some point you have to uh, have have some termination to the research and publish, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So my, um, so like I'm still researching it until today. I got into complexity thinking. I got into distributed leadership and all that. So, uh, and team science, because that plays a huge role in what I'm learning right now. Yeah. Um, so. So I, I apologize. We have to, I feel like we're, we're cutting things off short, but let's, let's do, you and I have talked <clears throat> so much over, the last 10 plus years. Um, this is just the first time we're recording it. So let, let's do, let's do this again. Um, <clears throat> but before we go, just two questions, you know, for one is um, your dissertation available online for people to read through the uh, university? Yeah. So on, on, on pro, uh, on um, uh, ProQuest, it's available, but I have people who just, you know, at LinkedIn, I could easily just forward it as well. And I'm currently writing a more condensed version of it and i'm also going to be doing i'm going to be posting on my website um the 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 powerpoint deck which is a condensed version of what i just said yeah so you can find muhammad on uh, linkedin Uh, the visibility llc website is www.vizllc.com and then the m plus group and that's spelled out www.vmplusgroup.com not a plus sign but the word so those are two other places you can find Muhammad and his work. So uh, Muhammad, as, as always, it's great to um, connect with you and uh, you know, hear your thoughts and reflections. Um, I, I absolutely hope we'll do this again sometime soon. I look forward to it, Mark, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.